And now to honor America and salute the men and women who serve our country. That was how the announcer started his first sentence several years ago. The context was a NBA playoffs basketball game. And the Portland Trailblazers were playing the Dallas Mavericks. It was 2003. And during the game, or before the game rather, they were going to have a singing of the national anthem. And the person who was going to sing for this particular game was a 13-year-old girl named Natalie Gilbert. Natalie was chosen by the fans because of her superior talent at a young age to sing in front of people and to have vocal displays that are tremendous in talent. And so she, she got out to the middle of the court and she started singing and she was crushing it, doing a good job so, so well, displaying her talent for everyone to see. And then about a couple of lines in, her, her worst nightmare happened because she forgot her line. And she froze. And she put the microphone down by her waist and she looked around horrified as over 15,000 people stared at her. At one point, she looked like she was going to make an exit from the door to run away. But then, at the last second there, Maurice Cheeks, the head basketball coach for the Portland Trailblazers, walked out to the middle of the court, properly put her arm around her, lifted up the microphone, gave her comfort and instruction to help her sing the song. Suddenly, she remembered the lines and the words started singing so well that the whole crowd was starting to get into it, the players and fans, and she finished off with a tremendous performance, getting one of the best and biggest standing ovations in the history of sports. She was able to do that because of the comfort and instruction of another person. Today we're continuing our Gospel of John sermon series, and we're in chapter 14. Beginning of the year, we started in chapter 1, now we're in 14, and we are in what scholars refer to as the farewell discourse. Farewell like goodbye, a discourse like teaching. Jesus is teaching his disciples and it's the last week of his life and he's giving all that he has to them, pouring everything into them, telling them this is how I want you to live before I die and rise from the dead. In fact, this is the longest continuous teaching of Jesus anywhere found in Scripture. And here Jesus giving comfort and more instruction to his disciples. That is something that all of us are looking for in this season. Comfort, guidance, with things going on in society, with the pandemic, teachers having a difficult time at school, businesses having a hard time. It feels like we are in desperate need for this help. We can ask, where can I have comfort when society seems to have them? you and helping you and showing you the way to eternal life. 
now suddenly he says he's leaving. And so this brought a sense of trauma to the disciples. What do you mean you're leaving? And they are troubled, but Jesus himself is also troubled. Because in a couple of chapters earlier, Jesus literally says, Now my soul is troubled. And that word troubled there needs to be in anguish or distress or in turmoil. So Jesus is troubled because he knows he's going to have to die on the cross to bear the wrath of God soon and rise from the dead. But look at him. He's still serving even though he's troubled. He's still helping people. He's still pouring his life into people. Jesus is fully God, yes, but he's also fully man. And at the time, where you think that he would want emotional support and help from others, he himself is the one serving people. I wonder how much, of, how many of us, when we have hard times, difficult times, we might run away from God and not run to God. We run away from God's people. We don't want to feel exposed or any shame as opposed to running to God's people and having God's people bear some of those burdens for you. When things get really hard, we might even excuse ourselves to sin. And not that feel so bad about it. Oh, uh, Drinking food, my gluttony or drunkenness, looking at things on the internet that are inappropriate, excusing myself from being materialistic, finding things I don't need, trying to find comfort in anything or anyone except for God Himself. Suffering is hard, but it's worse to sin than it is to suffer. The, the whole, you know, woe is me and self-pity, it really has a theological statement because you communicate to God, God, you don't know how to run the universe. If you did, my life would be this hard. And no doubt, weeping and lamenting and asking questions and having doubts and feeling afraid, all of those things are totally you read the book of Psalms, there's a lot of complaints and laments to God. We should do that when we feel troubled or sorrow. But to run away from God or to excuse ourselves to sin only make things worse. It's counterintuitive, but one of the best ways to help yourself with your own troubles is to help people with theirs. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what he's doing here. He's leading by example. And he's helping people in his trouble. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. So he sets the example, but he also gives a command. And notice the command isn't, do this, do that. He didn't say, go read your Bible, although that would be a good thing to do. He doesn't say pray, although that would be a good thing to do. He says, believe in God. Like, have more faith. That's the command that Christ gives. The cure for feeling trouble, when we feel a sense of trouble, is to believe in God. To have faith in God. Belief is not just mental assent. Even demons believe and shudder. We see that in the book of 
ridiculous. So merely believing that there is a God and He exists gets you nowhere. As we've seen throughout the book of John, this belief is personal, relational, ongoing trust and faith in the entirety of your faith casted into God. And that faith should result in some sort of life change. So when you go through financial strain or family difficulty or health issues, one who follows Jesus has to believe in Him, not just for salvation, but also believe that He is good. That somehow, even though I don't understand everything that's happening right now, God is working this out for my good and His glory if I belong to Him. I was listening to a series of lectures by Dr. D.A. Carson, who's a renowned New Testament scholar, probably one of the most famous Bible theologians alive today, and he was doing a series of lectures, and he made a comment in the middle of them that really struck me. Here's a guy who has a PhD and has been teaching theology for 40 plus years. He said, God wants your trust more than your understanding. Understanding is good. Being a person who reads and studies and educates himself and wants to figure things out is really good. But even the smartest among us are going to have such hardship that it won't make sense if there's 0% of you figuring out 100% of why it's happening because you and I are finite and God is infinite. What God wants in those hard times is your trust more than your understanding. But it says in Proverbs, you trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Just because you can't see how God is working in your life doesn't mean He isn't. And so the disciples are troubled. Jesus sets a good example. He tells them a command. A command is simple. Believe in God and have faith. Right? Is it Earn them down with a lot of rules like the Pharisees like to do. But then Jesus talks about his leaving is a good thing. His departure and going to heaven is actually a blessing. It says this, verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms who were not so, but I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. So somehow, this is supposed to encourage the disciples. Jesus says, I'm going to my Father's house. Using a metaphor, he's talking about heaven. And I prepare a place for you. Eternal dwelling place. He's keeping in step with the metaphor and saying, I, I, I know this is hard for you right now. It's going to be painful. I, I never promised if you follow me, things would be easy all the time. We're going to heaven, we're preparing a place for you. He's talking to the disciples, he's not talking to us, talking to them. He said, one day I'll come back and get you, and things will be back to where they were. He says, there are many rooms. There's, there's, there's more room. Heaven is not full. Anyone, anyone can get in on this. And Jesus is about to talk about how to get to heaven. How do we have a right relationship with God? But there's, there's, there's more space for anyone. Rich or poor, white or black, Republican or Democrat. Everyone in between. Anyone who 
turns from his sin and simply believes in Jesus, regardless of any past or shame, have a right relationship with God. And Jesus gives him this comfort about heaven and what he's doing, but this sparks more questions from Thomas. Thomas asks, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Uh, in the previous section of Scripture, Jesus is teaching, and Peter asks the question first. And you know, when you're in the classroom, the teacher is teaching, and there's this awkward silence, and no one is saying anything, and then one, one person raises their hand, suddenly he sparks several other questions. It's kind of what happens here, because Thomas is listening, and he asks the question, saying, how, how can we know the way? This is the, the, the doubting Thomas, the same Thomas that said, unless I put my finger and the mark of the nails and place my hands at the side, I'm never going to believe. And although belief in God is this ongoing, personal faith in God, not, not just mental ascent, is a common theme. Another common theme in John's Gospel is this slow to belief from the disciples. That Jesus goes out of his way over and over to teach them. They still don't pick up on what he's saying. So Jesus here responds, how can I know the way of one of the most popular, famous Bible verses on all streets? Listen to these words. It says this. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You wouldn't say that Bethesda Church is the church in St. Louis. You would say that it is a church in St. Louis. Several more of the churches. Jesus doesn't say, I am a way, a truth, a life. He says, I am the truth, the way, the life. This is one of the clearest and frankly most offensive statements in all of Scripture. Probably one of the most offensive claims in all of literature, all of history. Jesus is saying, I am, believe in me, is the only way to a right relationship with God. And all other ideologies or religions lead to eternal condemnation. That's what Jesus is teaching here. Jesus is not just one God among many good options. He's the only viable option. Those who claim to know God but don't acknowledge Jesus Christ as fully God do not know God. It is not enough to believe that he was only a prophet. It is not enough to believe that he was a religious teacher or just a good guy. That is not enough. One must believe that he is fully God and that he's the way to heaven. Belief in his name. That's what Luke says elsewhere when speaking about Jesus. He says, Acts 4.12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We live in a day of religious pluralism. Pluralism comes from the word plural. It means more than one. More than one way. Everyone gets a trophy. It was true for you. It was true for you. It was true for me. It was true for me. I don't want to offend anybody. We should be tolerant and accepting of everyone's views on everything. Certainly, if people of God show kindness, love, and care, and grace. But this is a clear, unflinching statement in Scripture that Jesus teaches He is the only way to a right relationship with God. 
As I heard one person say, when you go to the airport, there are many different planes you could get on. But at each airport, there's only one plane that gets you to the correct destination that you need to get on. All other planes lead you to the wrong path. It shows the, inc the inclusiveness of Christianity. Anyone is welcoming on this, but also exclusive. There's only one way to Christ. This really unsettles Ted Turner. Ted Turner is a he's the owner of CNN, and he's the owner of the Atlanta Braves. And he's done a lot of good. He's a, he's a billionaire. He's done a lot of good for philanthropy that should be commended. Wonderful work, whether one is a Christian or not. And they do things like this, they should be praised for. It's just a wonderful thing to do to support and bless other people. And uh, these people are a blessing in society. Uh, nevertheless, he did say a troubling comment in a U.S. Today, USA Today piece. He says, he says these words. He says, You know, I'm not looking for any big rewards. I'm not a religious person. I believe this life is all we have. I'm not doing good. I'm not doing what I'm doing to be rewarded in heaven or punished in hell. I'm doing it because I feel like it's the right thing to do. Almost every religion talks about a Savior coming. When you look in the mirror in the morning, when you're putting on your lipstick or shaving, you're looking at the Savior. Nobody else is going to save you beside yourself. Though many people would not boldly say that, many people live like that. Through effort, or through good works, or through deeds. Get me, go to church every once in a while. I even serve when I'm called upon. I've given money before. I've done some good. All of those things are good things, but they don't save a person. What Jesus is saying here is, it's only through belief and faith and trust in me. Good works are the evidence to salvation, not the means to salvation, not, not the way. You can't save yourself up. A lot of people try to live like that. We try to ease our consciences. I'm not that bad of a person. At least I'm not out there doing horrible crimes like many people. I guess God must be satisfied with me. He's insane. Put, put all that religiosity aside and look not to your own effort or your own service every once in a while, but only look to Christ and believe in Him. It's the right decision. It's the best decision to place your faith in Him. So Jesus is giving comfort and instruction to His teachings that His disciples ask questions in first. Peter asked a question, and Thomas asked one. Now Philip, Philip says, verse 8, show us the Father. In other words, he's saying, uh, show us the Father and it will be enough. He's saying, uh, I want to see God come down right now. I want to see an appearance. He says, it will be enough for me. That word enough is content. Like, I will be content if you show me God right now. And Jesus, almost in this sort of sad, anti-climatic question, is saying, Philip, Philip, have I not been with you this whole time? But the Father is in me. I'm in the Father. I'm showing you God. We need to show you God. And this kind of stuff happened in the Old Testament. The disciples would have read this. Old Testament, so they would have been familiar with some of these stories. And some of you will remember this from, from Exodus. Moses says to, to 
God Yahweh says, show me your glory. In other words, I want to see you. And the Lord replies, you can't see my face, but man shall not see me and live. But he says, go to a rock, and I'll pass by, you'll see my back. My face shall not be seen. We don't exactly know what Moses saw. Speculation is usually unhealthy. It says, in fact, we move on. But, but anyway, there, there's, there's a, a, the, a theologian called a, a theophany. It's, it's a big word. It's not confusing. It means the appearance of God. Remember this in Daniel, or in Hagar, when she's casted out of Abraham's home. Sarah's jealousy because she was able to have a baby, but she was not at the time. And it says, Hagar ran away to a spring of water, and God met her there. She says, uh, she says You are the God who sees me. There, there are some things that happen in the Old Testament. Bill was, Bill was saying, I don't want to see one now. Jesus is saying, I know that there's no theophanies in the Old Testament, but if you see me, you see God. So yes, God does do remarkable, occasional things like that in Scripture in the Old Testament, but that's not the norm. The norm is God chiefly reveals Himself to people through Christ. That's God's primary way of showing the world what God is like through Jesus. So Jesus is saying, you see God. This is why Christmas is so important. From a Christian perspective, we love the gifts, we love the food, and the years that we can celebrate, we enjoy, and we love the time of family, but we remember we recall that Christ, fully God, left heaven to take on humanity, to take on flesh, to live among us perfectly without sin, and throughout his life, we see God. That's how God revealed himself Chiefly through Christ. So, so Jesus is saying that Philip, you've seen me, you've seen God. And then Jesus starts to give his disciples a few more comments. Some of these comments seem too good to be true. They really do. If you look at them, Jesus says, You'll do greater works than me. Verse 12. Then he adds in verse 13, he says, Whatever you ask for in my name, I will do it. Really misinterpreted. Jesus talks about the, the works. What, he, what he's saying is not that the disciples somehow are going to do more spectacular, cool things than Jesus. If Jesus died on the cross, rises from the dead, there's only one Savior. We're not going to compete with them with the level of accomplishment that Christ does. That's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is that. When he says you're going to be greater, what's that he's saying? You're going to reach more people than me. I'm one person, you guys are 12. You go down to 11. Then 11 went to 3,000. Then it went to so and so. Now it's up to 2 billion. Disciples, this is how worldwide Christianity spreads because Jesus says, I'm going to the Father. He's in heaven. He's, in, he's ruling. In the next chapter, we'll see. Next few verses about we'll see the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about the Holy Spirit and how important He is, not an it, a He. And because Jesus is on His throne right now, He raises up pastors and ministry leaders and church planners and, and, and regular, ordinary people to, to share the gospel. And that's how Christianity spreads through the word of God. The Holy Spirit using people, ordinary people like you and I, to share our faith with people. So, so the greater works that we're going to reach more people. And we're going to reach more geographies. This is, this is the gospel is to go to all nations. And this 
point, Jesus is just in a couple of areas in the Middle East. That's it. Now the calls to go to every tribe, tongue, and nation to reach people for Christ. So that's when Jesus says you're going to do greater works than me. He's talking about territory, number, extent. Not somehow we're going to be more spectacular things. And then he mentions prayer, and prayer should be connected to the works. He says, whatever I, he says, I, and I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You ask me anything in my name, and I will do it. Um, she's just talking about prayer, and first it says, it seems like we pray for whatever, like a million dollars, or for quick health, or better we make kids, we're going to get it right away. That verse is connected to the verse about works, it's more of a missional thing for Christians to live initially, so we're saying, hey, as you do my mission through my power, through my spirit, and you ask for me for success and proof, I will bless those endeavors. He's not saying that we have to say, quote, in Jesus' name, and quote, after every prayer, you know, people do that. It's fine to do that, you don't have to. He's not saying we'll give you whatever you want when you pray. He's saying uh, uh, prayer is meant in part to glorify the Son. As you do his works, I will be with you to bless you. It says in 1 John, it says, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, the key phrase there is his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have a request we have asked of him. So when we pray, when we don't get what we want, because God said no, because our request is not according to his will. God works through a plan. He has a plan for the universe. And he says yes, because he's a good father. He blesses us with prayer requests. He says no, because he's smarter and he knows better. Which says later, not yes, but, but not now. So when we, when we pray and we don't get what we want, we, sh- we should not be discouraged because God knows best. It's not a part of his will. He always gives us something better. Nevertheless, I want to hasten to say that prayer does matter and does change his name. We should regularly come to God, both in private and in public, with our prayers. Trusting Him, knowing that He knows best. Even if He says no, we know that He has something better and He is going to bless us some other way. We should never feel discouraged to pray. We should always feel encouraged knowing that God is in control. So this is kind of the teaching that Jesus is giving his disciples before he leaves. Giving them comfort. Giving them instruction about prayer and worldwide evangelization through evangelism. It's not his deathbed, but it is the last week of his life. And I was reading about the regrets of people on their deathbed. Nurses will probably know more about this than me. People who work in the medical field or hold hands with someone in the last moment know that people tend to sort of let it out there at the end. One of the biggest regrets that people have, because I don't want to waste my life. I want to be a good steward and maximize my potential in every way. I don't want to look back and say, I should have done this, I could have done this. I know I will. I'm a sinner, I mess up, and, and, and there's a level of healthy regret. I don't want to be narcissistic and pretend like you've never made a mistake in Daniel mind. But there is a healthy sense of, yeah, I really, I really don't want to blow this. God's giving me one life. I, I really, really want to use my full potential to prove. How can I not waste, how can I not have regrets and put into this 
book I was reading, uh, there were three things that came up over and over again. Was if I do it over again, I would reflect more. If I had to do it over again, I would risk more. Risk everyone in the If I had to do it over again, I would do more things that would live on after I am dead. Live on after I am dead. Thank you. 